Welcome to Straight from the CPA's Mouth, your connection to the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center, Alberta CPAs, and business professionals. This podcast, presented by the CPA Education Foundation, features Alberta chartered professional accountants and others sharing their expertise and insights on a wide range of topics. Tune in regularly for eye-opening looks on leadership, business, education, and many issues of the day, straight from the CPA's mouth. Before we begin, in honour of the 94 calls to action put forth by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, we'd like to acknowledge that CPA Education Foundation offices are situated on the traditional Treaty 6 and Treaty 7 territories. The Foundation acknowledges that we reside on traditional and ancestral territories of many Indigenous, First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples. Their histories and culture influence our community to this day. The CPA Education Foundation is committed to helping build a province where Indigenous peoples and their voices and experiences are heard, valued, respected, and celebrated. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Straight from the CPA's Mouth. My name is Kira Kuzvaller. I'm from the CPA Alberta member engagement team, and I'll be your host today. If you clicked on this episode, chances are you already know that diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, or DEIA for short, has become a hot topic in the last two years. Everyone from your favorite chocolate bar manufacturer to fashion brands to, yes, even your accountant, seems to have put out a statement recently condemning oppression in all its forms. But What's actually happening behind all those commitments to anti-racism? How are businesses actually changing the way they work in order to prioritize the well-being and inclusion of their employees, contractors, suppliers, and clients? Seeing hollow DEIA initiatives fail or lose momentum can be discouraging, and I don't blame anyone who feels cynical about the work today. But... If you clicked on this episode, the chances are also that you have in some way benefited from the work of DEIA advocates. If you, like me, are part of the over 20% of Canadian adults living with a disability and, like me, are part of the 4% of adult Canadians who are 2SLGBTQIA+, and, like me, are one of the growing group of new Canadians, with 25% of us born elsewhere and fortunate to live here now. If you are female, trans, non-binary, or gender non-conforming, if you are Indigenous, Inuit, Métis, or affiliated with any of the over 450 ethnic and cultural origins that make up the population we call Canadians, your ability to access dignified work has likely improved since your parents' and grandparents' time. We're highlighting social progress to identify the advancements that have been happening in society, while also recognizing the work that remains to be done and the systems and institutions that need to be held accountable. Our guest today has witnessed and personally experienced these cultural shifts and makes a grounded and convincing case that progress can and will continue, regardless of the buzzword of the day. Ray Shunger is the Director of Strategic Partnerships at Recruitment Partners. Ray isn't quite a CPA, but I hope you won't hold it against him because he has over 15 years of experience in the talent and staffing industry and holds myriad academic credentials, including an MBA and certificates in both Indigenous Studies and EDI. We have a lot to talk about, and I can't wait to hear from him. So let's get into it. It's time to hear it straight from the subject matter expert's mouth. Ray, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Ray, all it takes is a quick scroll of my LinkedIn feed to feel like I'm swimming in an alphabet soup. DEIB, EDI, IDEA, JEDI, even ESG and CSR get lumped in sometimes. Which acronym do you use to describe your work, and why? 
to be very simple, I use Jedi just because it sounds cool. <laughs> I, I wish there were greater reasons for it, but I, I'm a bit of a film fanatic, and so I, I glommed onto that one very quickly. I think it's important to be able to ascribe your own personal meaning to the work that you're doing. It's a good way for you to represent your values and bring your identity to work. There are a few key terms that comprise most of this alphabet soup. Do you mind if we start with a lightning round for definitions? Go right ahead. Diversity. Oh, diversity. And we've heard a lot about this. So diversity is the, the tacit acceptance that there is breadth. There is not a single right, best, good, bad, anything. It's breadth. There's a fabric and a tapestry that we are... We're, we're bound to embrace. And once we embrace that tapestry, we will be a better place. Beautiful. What about equity? Equity means that everyone within our broad demographics have equal opportunities and opportunities and equality of outcome. In terms of their, their skills, the things that we assess all people on are assessed equally across all of us. It's interesting that you highlight the relationship that is inherent in equity, that it's not just about an individual in a vacuum chamber, but the outcomes and the experiences that they have. Um, I think that probably ties into your definition of justice as well. So the J in Jedi, uh, justice means that we are treating everyone with a view to fairness. Um, we're, we're understanding that certain people do not receive the, the level of justice that others do receive in terms of their, their own experience. And as a result, we're not getting the best outcomes for everybody based on the things that we're measuring. Definitely. What about inclusion? Uh, inclusion. And we've all heard the, uh, the old cliche, which is um, being asked to the dance and not being invited to actually dance with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so inclusion means that we're all part of the conversation. So you might get to work in an environment and you might be a participant in certain parts of that, of that corporate or that government or that educational grouping. And that's a wonderful place to be, but you're not quite part of every conversation. And for whatever reason that you're not included, the organization's not as rich as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You need people to both be invited to the table, but you also need them to be participants in the conversations that are happening at the table. Yeah, or... we all want to dance. Yeah, exactly. Uh, two more, accessibility. Accessibility means we all have the ability to uh, to get to, to work in, to achieve, and there are no obstacles that we can't overcome. You know, wh- whether it's through... Uh, technology, whether it's through um, the requirements of the job itself, that accessibility means we all have access to those things. And I think that that is so important for people to be able to achieve self-actualization and reach that full potential that everyone has in working in their personal lives. The last one that I have is belonging. Belonging means that when we go to this place where we're allowed to be successful, we also have a sense, like an innate sense within us, that this is a place where we belong. We belong with these people, we belong in this environment, and we belong doing this thing naturally because we have the skills and the abilities to do those things. What I take away from all of your definitions here is the way that all of these facets are interconnected, too. It's not that any of these can take place within a vacuum. It's that all of these need to work together. There is really no no belonging without equity and inclusion and without that recognition of diversity that you mentioned already. Now, 
You've described DEIA as a cornerstone of culture. What do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is our society is a, and I'll keep using this term, it's a tapestry. It's a rich, beautiful fabric. And and our organizations that exist within that within that tapestry should necessarily reflect the community outside of the building. And in order to serve those people, uh, to to sell to those customers, to bring services to those people, it behooves, it, it falls upon us to figure out how best to relate to that community. And in order, the community is, is, the, is the important aspect of this. The company is just a logo. Um, the company is made up of people who come from the community. And so as a result, back to the interconnectedness part, or nothing happens in a vacuum. The company doesn't exist in a vacuum. It cannot. The, the people don't exist in a vacuum. It cannot. So it's all the same real thing to me. Mm-hmm. And I think as, as we view companies from that perspective, they, they tend to become more important to their communities, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely, because, I mean, that fits into just what the definition is of community, of everyone being together and feeling as though they have connections and acceptance. And so for businesses that prioritize DEIA and really work on reflecting their community and their community's values, they are going to have more successes. But what does this mean for organizations that don't prioritize DEIA? I'll be honest to say, I don't think that those organizations are allowed to exist too far into the future, right? You know, from the perspective of organizational change, an old, an old cliche that we hear quite often is when we, when we cease to change as an organization, we, we probably will die. And this is the most important change. Every company has at some point told us that our people are our number one asset, right? It's, it's reiterated and iterated so many times, but really what it means is without the focus on human beings and personnel, the computers, the processes, the filing cabinets don't really do a lot by themselves. Mm -hmm. And so you cannot be a laggard for very long in this. And being a first mover in this is not risky, Mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot of things as a business that you have to assess your your decision-making, strategic, risky things that you might do with import and export, supply chain management, all those words that we talk about all the time. But if you if you do not prioritize this as one of the first and most important, the rest of those will fall to the wayside. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love what you said there that it's not risky to look at how you're treating your employees and to look at the role that you're playing in your community because this work, it matters to people and it matters to people both within your organization and outside of your organization. I think that that's a really beautiful way of putting it. Now, DEIA work has grown in prominence over the last few years as conversations surrounding colonialism, racism, gender equality, transphobia, and hegemonic white supremacy have become more mainstream. How have responses to your work changed over the last few years? I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate to work in a in a business or an industrial community, especially here in Alberta, where where diversity is the mainstay. We have attracted to this part of the world some of the best and the brightest on the planet. And with that, with that advanced education, with these wonderful human beings that are populating our, our organizations here, I, I think my good fortune comes from the fact that we don't experience these, I call them fringe movements, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're 
if you're holding on to some bygone era's uh, cultural mm-hmm. value system that that tells you that one group is better than another group, mm-hmm. you're likely not working in some of the organizations which I'm which I'm getting to to, to be a part of, mm-hmm. and and I know it exists, mm-hmm. you know, in small pockets, and you could say. Uh, in non-urban centers, perhaps, mm-hmm. but at the same time, even those organizations do business with other organizations, mm-hmm. right? If if there's a a pocket of racism somewhere in Alberta that we don't know about, mm-hmm. they want to do business with you or with me, and we won't tolerate that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it falls upon industry to police itself that way. Like they they tend to auto police, and the majority of companies that I've experienced. Uh, great experiences with, to be honest, are are those that not only will spend money on you, but they'll ask you about your core values and your mission. And they'll ask me at Recruitment Partners, how do you guarantee that you are applying standards of DEIA or JEDI to, to, to our hiring principles to make us more competitive, not more nice, Mm-hmm. just more competitive as industry members. Mm-hmm. And so we we take that very seriously and I think the if these old values still exist in pockets within your organization, my advice is to is to deal with that and address that very quickly. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think that we'll talk more about your emphasis on shared values in just a bit here, but I think that you paint a really positive view of the benefits of DEIA. Not only does it make business sense, but it also is the way that progress seems to be going right now. And it seems as though you've found a place at Recruitment Partners where you are able to really live those values and to work through those values. And I'm wondering, how would you contrast the current attitudes towards your work and that sort of positivity that you experience? Is that the same as when you started 15 years ago, or is this something that has changed over time? So when you get to my age, 15 years does not seem like a very long time. <laughs> so having said that, in the in the context of DEIA, uh, we are light years ahead. Mm-hmm. We have we have moved into territories that we had no concept of back in the the early to mid 2000s, mm-hmm. and. Anecdotally speaking, there were a lot of conversations back then around talent and hiring and attracting people that would that would make you blush today. That would no one was bad, right? Mm-hmm. These were not horrible people asking for uh, unkind things. They didn't see it that way. It was the it was the zeitgeist, if you will, of the of the era to to be culturally homogeneous or. Um, ethnically homogeneous or linguistically uh, mm-hmm. offended by maybe a thicker accent, perhaps, mm-hmm. and 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 that was the that was the business and industry in which we existed. These were multinational companies that still kind of embodied these old school values, and I'm really proud to say that they don't exist in my in my realm anymore. They really do not. Those companies have have dealt with those things. They've put programs in place. They've educated themselves in order to probably be more competitive, but just to be good. That's amazing. Something that you and I have talked about is the way that privilege skews your perspective. If you're used to the scales being tipped in your favor, equality can feel like oppression. I definitely know how quickly I feel defensive when someone who doesn't look like me gets something that I feel entitled to. It takes real work and humility to take a step back and try to see things from someone else's perspective. 
How can business leaders help their teams manage these shifts in workplace culture and expectations? This is a very complex part of the the entire movement. And by that, I mean, on balance, it's the right way and it's the it's the future and it is progress but at the same time the repercussions are many and what i what i'm referring to is if if you're not deemed part of that underrepresented group you know you deem you're deemed part of the old school represented group mm-hmm. uh, you can't help but be afraid and those are those are real fears fears that perhaps the future doesn't look bright for you in your career and your ability to educate your children feed your family you know those very important values that many of us all share in common and so it takes it takes a very interesting perspective if you think about it to say i realize that i've been the you know, bestowed privilege for a very long time and i'm now prepared to lose my promotion because that is a that is ultimately how many people will operationalize these values. Mm-hmm. Um, by the same token, if we look at the recipient, for instance, or the beneficiary of of a of a robust DEI program, they might be kind of subject to more scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And and these are all things that we have to to work through, and they're just complexities of it. None of these are reasons not to do this correctly and quickly, but they're things that we have to do uh, and address in order to create safe workspaces for everybody, mm-hmm. and and realize what we're prioritizing is not uh, you versus me, them versus those people over there, but rather what we're prioritizing is success. Mm-hmm. And I think that that ties in so nicely to this idea that I, as a white person, don't want to be promoted just because I'm white. I want to be promoted upon the skills that I have. And while it's really easy for me to get defensive and be in a fear space that you had mentioned earlier, you want to have things because you've earned them, not just because that's the standard and the default. And you don't want to also be complicit in the oppression of other people, of someone being passed over because they have an accent or don't look a certain type of way or don't act a certain type of way. And so I think that you can find find a real way to turn that around when you stop and think about, well, what does this actually mean if I continue to remain in this status quo? I think you're right. It is a big conversation and a very difficult one, but I'm glad that more people are prepared to have it because of the work that you do. Now, talking about your working partnerships, one of the key things that you've said you look for in working partnerships is shared values. Have you ever experienced resistance to this aim? Certainly. And I think ultimately aligned organizations will work with aligned organizations. So recruitment partners is, um, I'm very proud to say that we don't work with organizations that don't share in our values. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we walk away and uh, turn our noses at anybody by any stretch of the matter. We will work with organizations to help them achieve these goals. But if an organization today were to give us an indication that they are they're quite against what we're trying to accomplish. We have we have full permission to decline, mm-hmm. right? And and go and work in places where maybe our style and our values mirror the values of those clients or those customers. And recruitment is an interesting space because if you think about what we're trying to do, it's very hard. The hardest part of recruitment is finding a, a fit. Mm-hmm. A fit between a team and an organization and a, a value system and and a talented individual 
who ultimately has personal goals to feed their family, to to raise children, to walk in a spirit of excellence in, in their own definition. And so when we take that as seriously as we do, we can't afford to, to work in areas where we're taking risks, mm. right? We really do have to prioritize people. Mm-hmm. I think that ties in so nicely to my follow-up question of not being able to afford to take on partners that don't work. Because when I was thinking about this, I wondered if there's a degree of privilege that allows you to be picky about your partners working at such a large and prestigious firm. For instance, I'd imagine a solo entrepreneur or a small startup may not have the ability to say no to a client. And so I'm wondering what your advice would be for someone who needs the work but maybe takes issue with a client's values. That's a very astute question. So everybody that starts in any industry is at the whim of the market, desperate for their first check, desperate to to land their first lovely client, um, desperate to learn and do good things. And as you get better in in your world and you get more experienced and your business reputation expands, you, you do have a, certainly have a better grip on how those dollars are going to be earned. But yeah, you're very right. In those early days, you don't have as much influence. And and as a result, you might find yourself in, in personal conflict. I think I was fortunate. I was fortunate in my early days to have the, the guidance and the mentorship of great people who said dishonest, dishonest or unpleasant dollars are really not good for you. Mm. And and as a result, you get to move forward in your career. You might not make as much money as someone. You really might have to sacrifice. And if you have, no one has the luxury to not make as much money as they need to make. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you get to live with your conscience. I have, I have a simple litmus test and I, it does really lend a little bit of black and white to a very gray world. And that is if I have to go home at the end of a workday and I have to buffer meaning soften the story a little bit as I regale my young bored children what I did today for work, I probably didn't do something mm. correctly. Mm. And and I found that that paradigm really does trump anything I learned in my MBA or my DNI course or or anything else I've learned along the way. It just really makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And and now I know that they're staring at me right now from somewhere in, in Alberta going, Daddy, you better say the right thing. Wow. It sounds like basically the best advice is have your own personal sense of ethics and to do the work necessary in order to cultivate that and coming up with whatever your version of what would I tell my kids is. One of our core values at Recruitment Partners is do the right thing. It's and it's probably the one that underpins all of the other core values. And if you if you turn to your values and you look to your value system as the lens to examine the day-to-day affairs, the business decisions, the transactions, I find it simplifies mm-hmm. very much those those awkward moments where you're thinking, should I, shouldn't I? Mm-hmm. And we all have them. As we leave our house every day, I have it when I turn left for some reason or right. I'm mm-hmm. not sure why, but yet that's the reality of the world we live in. It's complex. Mm-hmm. And the closer you can simplify that to black and white, I find the better 
the better the decisions and the outcomes tend to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that having conversations like this are really helpful as well because oftentimes when you're in an ethical dilemma, one of the things that prevents you from taking action is shame, being ashamed that you're even in that situation in the first place. Whereas if we can have conversations openly about, yeah, I was in this situation and it was really hard to choose what I knew was the right thing because I knew that I would make more money or personally gain or feel momentarily better about myself if I chose the other option. Um, we need to normalize that we all have those situations in our lives mm -hmm. and that you can turn to people around you and talk about these things in an open and honest fashion. I mean, easier said than done, but I like to think we're taking a small step here right now. <laughs> so, Ray, when I'm not interviewing you, I am a member of CPA Alberta's Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility Working Group. And one of the things I've learned from this work is that leaders and employees have different and complementary responsibilities to create an inclusive workplace. What is one action item or piece of advice you would give to business leaders? So I believe that a properly executed program starts at the top. Mm -hmm. There are many people in, in larger and even smaller organizations who are looking to senior leadership teams, whether that's middle management up to the C-suite, to really emphasize the importance of this. You and I, as teammates in the mailroom, can start a committee among the mailroom employees, and maybe it even takes uh, root and we become successful and it starts to spread and the word gets around our large organization. But I think there's a much more efficient way to do that. So that comes from regular messaging and programming. So not just talking or an annual general meetings email chain or anything like that, but real action that insists upon looking at these everyday world challenges and emphasizes the plight of people to to really underpin why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. And once that comes from the top and it's emphatically implemented, some of my greatest clients, it, it is the CEO who who is the champion and sponsor of this program. Mm -hmm. And while I watch those those programs take place at different levels within an organization, nothing is as fast as when your CEO or your C-suite in general or the board of executives says, this is what we're going to do. And then they live those values very publicly. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the communication comes from that place in the organization. And it's not just speech and communication, but it's also dollars mm -hmm. and and initiatives. And, and we're doing this. And it, I think there's nothing more expensive than than a project or a program that you don't finish. Mm -hmm. It's ex it's okay to fail, right? We learn so much from from failure and trying and failing and then doing it again. And hands open me a culpa that this didn't work out, but we're going to do this again because it's that important to us. Mm -hmm. So that would be probably my greatest learning in this is that it has to be from the the sky, really. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I like that you were able to marry together those two concepts of it has to be communication. People need to know exactly what the priorities are and what people are wanting to work on and what our goals are as an organization. But those dollars also need to be there. It's not just about talking mm-hmm. it. It's about making action and making allocating the resources such that that action can take place. Mm-hmm. Now, You've mentioned what you think leaders should do. What about employees? If you and I are in the mailroom, should we start a committee? We should start a committee. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll start a great committee. We will be wildly successful because we believe in it. I think, I think everyone is a leader and everyone has opportunities to lead. And one of the, the interesting qualities that in recruitment we are often focusing on, whether the, the job title calls for it or does not, is leadership. And how do you define it? So we're leaders, whether we're on little league teams, whether we're coaches on the weekend, whether we volunteer at a, at a local kitchen, um, we're all able to lead. And leadership is not just talking, it's action. You know, demonstrative things that people see you do are, are just as powerful, if not more powerful, than the words that you impart to them. And I think it's taking time, some, you know, in those rare moments when you observe something, there's a lot of teaching moments in our day at work. Mm-hmm. And to to sensitively go about your business and to share in, a, in an opportune moment why something should be different, mm-hmm. I think is a special way that everybody can participate. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, in a 500-person organization, there's only one president, mm-hmm. whereas there are 499 other people. And probably there's a wave of a wave of success that comes when we're all part of the program. Mm-hmm. I think that absolutely that participation piece is is so critical. And the thing that I would add to it is if employees can cultivate a sense of curiosity about the other people that are around them and actually ask questions of what's it like to be you? What's it like to have your identity and still show up to work here? And where do you experience pain points? And where can I help you? Having that curiosity really makes a difference in an organization because it lets people know that you care. And there's an anecdote that you have shared with me earlier about if your conversations in your lunchroom are about hockey, you are leaving out people. Uh-oh. I'm wondering if you could share more about that. Uh, yes, indeed. And I realize this is probably uh, my last day in the podcast world. Um, <laughs> I love hockey. I, I enjoy the, the great game. And it's, uh, it's as much a part of the, the tradition of Canada as it is, as anything else is. But something that I've observed over the years was that many of our of our conversations, our water cooler chats, tended to focus around hockey. And interesting, it's fun, it's smart, it's interesting, and it's 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 many people's greatest passion, I'm sure. But what you realize is that probably does exclude a large, large majority of people. I'm not saying men like hockey. I'm not saying women like hockey. I'm not saying anything at all like that. But what I am saying is if if the three or four regular hockey fans in the office tend to dominate a certain social construct within that office, and it becomes obvious to you, there are other things that will come from there. It's not just learning about who scored last night. It's about, do you want to work on that project with me? 
do you want to go to the cabin this weekend? We got a great place in some lake in Alberta that we would like to invite you to because your children and my children also play hockey. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a fascinating phenomenon. We should write a book on this. Mm-hmm. But I do think that we have to be cautious about it. It's not to say don't talk about hockey. Mm-hmm. No one is ever going to, to cease the, the greatest game in Canada. Mm-hmm. But it's to really focus and emphasize on are we being... Are we reaching out to people on a level that they enjoy and understand mm-hmm. and can equally appreciate? Mm-hmm. And so keep talking hockey, but let's talk about other things too. Definitely. It's about can everyone participate equally in the casual conversations that happen at work? Conversations about hockey are great and are we also finding space for conversations about cricket or conversations that aren't about sport at all or conversations about issues that are important to other employees who don't care about hockey, for instance? Well, it's really difficult to talk cricket because a game is three days long. <laughs> so where do you start and where do you end? But 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 there was an anecdote that I, I did share and I, I recall this very well. There was a Monday morning coffee moment in, in, in an environment that I'm familiar with. And in that Monday morning coffee moment, it was often about the weekend. So how did coaching go? How was the team? Did you go to the game? You know, typical mm-hmm. conversational topics. And, and it was fun. And everyone in the room felt quite good about it, obviously. And we, we, we saw bonding there. Mm-hmm. And then when someone would walk in who maybe was not initiated mm-hmm. into that space, the conversation would quickly shift to, Kira, how's your project going? Mm-hmm. So it becomes very focused on your career and your business and your desk level challenges. Mm-hmm. And you realize that Kira is no longer not really participating in the social mm-hmm. banter that sometimes does form the fabric of whether we truly get to like each other, mm-hmm. right? And 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 you might say, oh, my project is going very well. Thank you very much for asking. Mm-hmm. At which point you don't know that you've been excluded from a conversation, but you truly mm-hmm. have been. Mm-hmm. And I think that difference is something that we need to address. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to address it without saying you can't talk hockey anymore. <laughs> but truly, I need us to recognize that we are doing it in order mm-hmm. to in order to at least contemplate addressing it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that that's where it comes back to curiosity, to asking the employee who walks in, oh, so you're not a fan of hockey. Well, what did you do over the weekend that was interesting? What's been bringing you joy lately? What, you know, brings meaning and and pleasure to your life? Uh And then taking the time to learn more about those things. If my options are to either learn about hockey or to be excluded from workplace conversations, I'm probably going to pretend to know a few things about hockey. But ultimately, I would love it if someone took an interest in the things that I'm interested in and, you know, asked me about how my soccer team is doing or asked me about other things that are in my life, what books I've been reading or something like that. So I think that we have a lot of opportunities to make things better for people and that it's actually a lot easier than we think because it really just comes down to recognizing this is a real live human being right in front of me and I have the opportunity to learn more about them and that's such a great, great opportunity. The last question that I have for you is about looking to the future. So what do you think that DEIA initiatives must accomplish in the next two years and what do you hope they can accomplish? That's a tough question. I'm a uh, very optimistic person when it comes to the organizations with whom I work and how they are managing through this. 
And so in the next two years, my my client group and my community are going to continue to sharpen their skills in this area. They're they're going to become better organizations as a result. They're their shareholders will appreciate that. Their balance sheets will show it. And and they will experience early growing pains in some cases. You know, day-to-day frustrations of things that in two years will no longer frustrate. And I think that's very exciting. Uh, I also think those organizations, because they have influence in their business communities, they will, they will, they will share that value. And so their vendors, their suppliers, their own customers who perhaps are a little bit further behind on that path, the message will travel. And this is how this is going to go. It's, it's, it'll become a hive mind and it'll become a non-negotiable, right? As, as opposed to, oh, how are you doing with that? Is, are you done yet? Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to that day when mm-hmm. we, we almost stop having to talk about it mm-hmm. because it's just... It's just as normal as anything else that we do mm-hmm. when it's, we're clearly discussing something because it's abnormal, mm-hmm. right? It has not hit the, the, the core of the organization yet. And we're trying and we're clawing at things and failing in projects and mm-hmm. succeeding in other projects. So that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, this is part of the process. And once we're done with the process, we won't have much to talk about anymore. Mm-hmm. We'll move on to a new challenge. Maybe hockey. Hockey, yeah. <laughs> Eat the puck. Oh, sorry. I, I betray. I betray my ignorance. <laughs> and the the reason why I ask this question in two parts is a quote that is sometimes attributed to Einstein. It might be apocryphal, but the idea that we often overestimate the change that will happen in the next two years and we underestimate the change that will happen in the next 10 years. And so if in about two years you're picturing that some sort of tipping point has occurred and DEIA becomes an integrated part of all work systems, it's something that most, the vast majority of our employees and workplace leaders feel confident in, and that most employees are feeling included and feeling like they can be their full selves at work. What do you think is going to happen in the next 10? I think by 10 years, probably more accurately, we we won't be as concerned about this as, as we are today. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean... You know, anecdotally speaking, when the news report uh, reaches our our cell phones uh, at 5 p.m. that company XYZ uh, did something that offends us Mm -hmm. in this area, Mm -hmm. we will be appalled. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think there's tolerance Mm -hmm. because we accept... Well, we're not met, we're not as mature. We're not as far mm-hmm. down the path of this. So the expectation of of perfection mm-hmm. is really low, or achievement is really quite low, mm-hmm. and so that slack won't exist in ten years. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be uh, almost at the point of an intolerance mm-hmm. for intolerance. I mm-hmm. guess we'll put it that way, and. And I look forward to that day because mm-hmm. I have I have young people in my in my world who who I see in 10 years being extraordinarily competitive individuals, not held back by their, by their immutable qualities, mm-hmm. but, but achieving things because of what they're good at. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that in 10 years, or I don't know, but I, I really do hope that in 10 years, their problems are more about what did I learn last night or what didn't I learn last night mm-hmm. rather than do I know 
how to talk to the the team at site mm-hmm. or can I thrive in a construction environment because I don't really belong there. Mm-hmm. We won't be saying things like that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to that day. That that sounds amazing. I love that the maybe buzzwordiness of DEIA will start to wane because it becomes more integrated. It's not something that we'll be constantly rolling out new statements about or new policies and new procedures and working groups because it will just be an accepted part of work. And mm-hmm. we'll have started to look beyond that and look at what we can achieve now that those things have been integrated. That sounds like a beautiful future. I want to live in that world. It is a beautiful future, and I I think we're not far from it. We have a lot of work to do, and we have a lot of positive work to do. It's quite exciting. You know, Mm -hmm. the the opportunities that that I get to to affiliate with, with customers. And I have some beautiful customers in this area who, who are not just talking this stuff, but they're walking it and living these values day in and day out. And my own firm, I'm proud to say, does the same thing. We get to, we get to emphasize the, the level of clients that we're going to pursue based on how they treat people, not how, how big the fees are or how, they, how quickly they pay us or are they nice to deal with. Everybody is nice to deal with. Mm-hmm. But how they, how they respect their community is really the, the, the fundamental cornerstone of how, how happy we are in business. And as a consultant, gosh, I, I don't think I would ever want to look back. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Ray, Thank you so much for joining me today. I I hope our listeners reflect on the DEIA initiatives currently taking place in their workplaces and the ways in which they can participate and become advocates for that positive change in their personal and professional lives. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been a ton of fun. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Straight from the CPA's Mouth. This episode featured Ray Shunger and was hosted by me, Kira Kazvaller. If you like what you're hearing, have ideas for future episodes, or have any feedback you'd like to share, email us at knowledgecenter at cpaalberta.ca or leave a comment on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Straight from the CPA's Mouth is produced by the CPA Education Foundation, the charitable arm of the CPA profession in Alberta. This podcast is made possible by Brian Heshey, FCPA FCA. Thanks to Brian's generous donation, the foundation created the Heshey CPA Knowledge Center, a virtual hub of resources for all Albertans. Find out more about the foundation and the Knowledge Center at cpaalberta.ca slash foundation.